With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales. Uh, the world keeps spinning, and you know the crypto markets are just. In- they're entertaining, but they're not near as much fun as the NFT markets. Um, and so I'm really lucky and privileged to have uh, back with us Max Stealth, uh, Bart and Trent from Down Under. I love, I love working with the Australians. I think it's, you know, you guys just have such a great culture and, and outlook on life and, and everything else. We just got to fix these time zones because either I'm suffering or you guys are like, you know, kind of waking up early and it's just, this isn't the way to do this. So, uh, Web3 is able to connect us, you know, around globally in, in every way except for the time zones. So, um, if at any point you guys see a project that has, you know, kind of a single centralized, uh, you know, time, time window, uh, I, I think that's the way we should really look at this here now. Um, but pivoting over, you know, right now we're, we're coming out of, uh, we're, we're in a bear. Um, you know, Bitcoin hit 18,000, uh, coming down from 60. We're, we're currently sitting today at 23. I always like to give the, the context of, of where we are right now in the market. Um, and, and I'd say, you know, there's been quite a, a hesitation and pullback on overall investments in the space. Um, now that doesn't mean that there is not investments in the space or that everyone's run away like in previous, uh, bears and crypto winters. Um, it's just becoming much more competitive and it's also kind of really showcasing the good projects that that have legs. And so really that's again what we're going to talk about today. And and you guys have been on here before, but let's go ahead and, and Bart, just kind of give us a, a quick rundown of, of your background and, and how you got here today. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm one of the founders of Max Stealth and uh, my key role there is uh, overseeing the investment and the portfolio management team. My uh, background prior to that, I'd worked in a VC that focused on Microsoft-based Web2 products uh, dealing with enterprise and also a family office that was dealing with uh, emerging kind of SaaS and uh, e-com platforms throughout uh, Southeast Asia, so focused on Philippines there. Uh, Prior to that, my uh, engagement with crypto, well, well, back then it was kind of an emerging ERC-20 sort of platforms was with Trent and uh, we travelled the world exploring the ICO craze of 2016, 17 and then the eventual pullbacks that gave us all a bit of reckoning. Um, and, yeah, there we were focused more so on the building side. So I had a venture studio uh, with staffing in Vietnam and we were heavily focused on uh, building our products and uh, using our existing development team to uh, support what was then the Solidity-based ecosystem and so much it, more. So, real quick note as long as you brought up the ICO craze, because, you know, looking back on it, it's easy to go, you know, oh my God, what were people thinking? Um, you know, none of these things had legs and it was just clear FOMO and, and, and hype from day one. But looking back on the NFT market from last year, it was pretty much the same thing. It's like, hey, we're going to make, you know, a triple A video game and we're going to do all these things and here buy our, buy our, you know, one ETH NFTs, uh, to support this. And, and, you know, and by the way, I've never built a video game and I have no idea how to start building a video game, but I promise it's going to be good. And they would sell out. Like, is it really, was it really that similar to, uh, you know, seven, the 17 ICO craze? Exactly the same. Uh, I think that's a common theme that we do see in these markets. It's kind of, now becoming a little bit more predictable 
um, as we start to mature as an ecosystem that first off we get a fad, which back then it was the ICO, now it's the NFT, and metaverse is now the next thing, building a million spaces that potentially, you know, people will come to, otherwise maybe they won't. Um, and then the real products come afterwards. So we get to see what the themes are going to be or what the prevailing trends are. And then um, over the next couple of years, the real products come out of that. So it's quite exciting now, I suppose, within that NFT market that we're seeing real products being developed off the back of that craze because there's now an awareness of what the possibility is within NFTs and therefore people want to get involved. And similar with ICOs, that's what we saw, potential business cases a lot of money being made and a lot of money being lost and uh, then real products built, which uh, adoption is now slowly coming to. So um, very similar themes. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll, we're definitely going to talk about uh, the the survivors of, of the crash right now and, and kind of, again, of some amazing projects that are really that were uh, kind of in the darkness during during the last bull run. But suddenly you're like, where have you guys been? So looking forward to chatting there. Trent, mm-hmm. how you been, sir? So it's early. You, you haven't quite had your full cup of coffee yet. I understand. Normally, I'm used to the the lively uh, Mr. Trent Barnes, but um, g- give us again a quick little backstory and um, you know what what kind of has got you excited today. Great, thank you, Jay. Uh, good morning. And um, so, essentially, one of the co-founders and uh, partners of uh, Max Self. Um, so, in charge of. Uh, investor relations, fundraising, custody management, um, IC, uh, deal deal flow. Um, and uh, really my background um, uh, sort of probably came from uh, in 2016, uh, exited uh, a business and um, became a man of leisure or a man of ledger and went full-time into the blockchain and crypto space. Um, I was introduced to uh, crypto uh, and um, more specifically Bitcoin uh, by a Venezuelan friend. Uh, Venezuelans uh, tend to understand the nature of uh, money, inflation, store of value and government overreach um, a lot better than others. Um, so I introduced in early 2017, co-founded the Blockchain Association of Australia, uh, which is essentially a not-for-profit um, that was dedicated to growing, supporting, uh, enhancing the, uh, the local blockchain ecosystem here. You know, we brought in uh, thought leaders from around the world to provide our local government, regulators, business, uh, the developer community with the latest and greatest in the blockchain space. And this led to building out a, um, a global community of partners in the space, which then led in late 2017 to co-founding uh, ZeroCap, uh, which started out as a, a VC, which invested in projects at an early seed stage and private token equity rounds. Um, we were fortunate to have invested in a number of great projects, layer ones, platforms, learned many lessons, just as you mentioned, um, when we're talking about the 2017-18 boom. Uh, so learn, learn a lot of lessons from those years. Uh, during the bear market, ZeroCap transformed uh, from a VC into a full service um digital asset crypto firm for sophisticated clients, uh, whereby it was a really deep um, focus on providing a product suite of digital assets, crypto and Web3 technology, um, funds management, uh, asset management, portfolio optimization, and uh, so essentially providing regulated and spot access to a range of products. Um, Notably uh, of recent, 
Uh, Zero Cap had also partnered with the ANZ Bank, which is one of the big 20 banks globally, to launch the world's first, oh, not the world, sorry, this region's first bank-backed stablecoin, and we facilitated a trade of it. And uh, one of our family offices uh, performed a $30 million transaction on it as well. So outside of Max Stealth and uh, Zero Cap, which is the custodian and treasury manager of the Max Stealth Fund, uh, also climbing mountains, surfing, uh, boxing, and sort of uh, trying to get as much physical activity in my life to balance out all the cognitive activity. <laughs> you know, it's um, crypto never sleeps. You know that we're, we work so much, and so it's true. You have to like you have to stay active. You have to do so many things. Although Bart, whatever you're doing, let's let's pull back on that because you're you've been injured too much lately. Um, but but I want to. <laughs> I was going to say, I just did unfollow that adventure. Yeah. So, but I, I want to take a second, you know, and talk about what you had to do, um, with, with zero cap trying, cause I think it's really relevant in the space. You guys set out to be VCs and, and to be a traditional VC, there's, you know, millions of people around the world that understand that process. They understand how to invest in, in fintech. They understand how to invest in medtech, but, but it's very different asset class when you start talking about, you know, basically anything related to blockchain. It moves faster. There's a lot less experience. Mm-hmm. And, and so by, kind of force, you had to expand your offerings because there was no one else that could speak to your portfolio companies or help bridge that gap between here's the here's the technology and here's the business model. And they usually are missing that. What, what was that like having to kind of continually grow and expand your offerings? Um, because you think, you think that they would know these things, but no one's taught them. Yeah, so having invested in quite a number of different transactions, projects. Um, you know, we were quite a proactive VC and wanted to ensure that we were sort of de-risking the investment by and providing as much support and partnerships, um, strategic advice as possible. Um, and so working with projects, one of the key sort of problems that we saw was actually trying to get their money into um, the traditional banking system. And so the we... Um, because of one of the partners of ZeroCap came from an FX uh, and commodities trading background, had his own trading prop firm. Uh, we we're fortunate enough to have had a um, banking, banking rails globally. And so we started to facilitate a number of different OTC deals for a lot of these projects where the projects had raised Ether um, primarily and uh, they needed to liquidate. And so we were able to liquidate the um the raise and then be able to send that to them uh, to their banks safely because uh, I'm pretty sure it happened, you know, globally from what we saw, but in Australia, deep banking had become a real problem with crypto companies. Uh, anything whereby, I mean, I've been kicked out of banks for being a founder of, of a crypto company and been um, banned from ever opening up an individual account again. And so that's how it all really sort of started. And that's when we really started to look at, the space and we saw that there'd been a lot of capital on the sidelines waiting to enter the space but they didn't have the institutional protections or sort of secure access points and that's how that initial investment um crypto bank or crypto firm um thesis really built out yeah i mean it, it is absolutely astonishing in this day and age that just the fact that you you're you're not doing anything illegal you're you're following the letter of the law you're an upstanding citizen 
And we had the same thing being denied, being denied a simple bank account. Um, even, even us, you know, we, we had to go back and forth and, uh, you know, Silvergate, which is the crypto friendly bank. It, it took six months, six months mm-hmm. for, for us to open a bank yep. account. And, you know, it, in the entire process, um, it really is showcasing just how scared <laughs> TradFi is of, of DeFi and the cryptocurrency space to, to be that aggressive against, you know, there's, Listen, KYC us all day long, go through all these things. Um, but, but it's really interesting to watch the space evolve. You guys have been here for a while and, you know, I, I generally like to think that things are getting better. Um, you know, 2017, there was probably everyone thought, Hey, we're going to make it. And then we, we hit that crypto winter. Um, and then we had the last bull run and everyone thought, okay, we're in the clear. And now we're, we're back here again. And I'd still say we're, you know, compared to, to 2017, that we're still in a bull run compared to where you guys were in the, in, in that kind of downfall. What are kind of some of the, the main pieces that, that started to showcase life? Cause you guys were, have been around for so long. And I like for our, our listeners to really understand what were the first indicators that you guys start to see that like the money's coming in, the, 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 the mood is changing. And, you know, it seems like hope is going to come back towards something that looks like a bull. Art, you want to take a stab at this? Hmm. Look on my hope. Maybe I'm too optimistic through what we see, but the hope side of things hasn't diminished. Like what we see in terms of transaction and players coming to the ecosystem, that's accelerating. Um, and the amount of money that is pouring in at this current point, like in, in ter- you know, the, the funds that are being announced, you're looking at you know two to five hundred million dollar funds every other week that are being announced. In a matter of four years ago, there wasn't a fund that was over half a billion dollars. Now there's a number of. So on that side, uh, I think the hope is still there as to where the market is heading. The key turning point for myself in terms of where I really saw that we were part of a movement that was going to last were the number of institutions that were adopting their, their legacy business models to accommodate what is you know, Web3. Over the coming years, it's no longer going to be Web3. It's just going to be what we utilise as the web. Like We don't call it Web2, Web1. It's a great marketing trick like Metaverse to say that we're in Web3 so that we can differentiate and we can track where we are in terms of how companies are adopting. But if we look at what the next strategy is, and that was one of my key reasons for moving on from the previous VC firm was the thesis of investment that they had was very focused towards enterprise and what was fast becoming legacy tech already. And we looked at the products that were coming out in what's Web3, they could you know, provide solutions without updating all of the mainframes, the legacy infrastructure they had. And you're starting to have those discussions with major enterprise where they would be bypassing those Web2 style technologies. You know, when we're looking now at storage, we can now look at IPFS file storage on a Filecoin network rather than only looking at Amazon and Azure. Is it there yet for general adoption? Not, but it is a discussion point. So the fact that those points are coming up and we're looking at VR, we're looking at, you know, social tokens, we're looking at employee option strategies in tokens, like these these are conversations that are happening in enterprise. So myself, that really is what shows that we are part of something that's going to last through a pullback, a bear, a bull, wherever it might sit in terms of the... Uh, the market side. You know, and, and Trent, you you and I and, and, and Barta as well, like I talk to you guys all the time. You're one of my like go-tos for like what's going on in, in the you know metaverse kind of NFT world. And and so 
you know, I, I know you, it's not a technical question, but we kept saying all throughout this last bull run, like NFTs without utility, like what are we, what are you really buying? And now I can't literally see a single article that doesn't include the word token gate, you know, token gating. And I, I agree with that. I think that's great. You know, let's, let's use them for something. Um, you know, where, where are you seeing the best kind of looking for utility cases for some of these NFT projects that are yet to come online? And are we seeing some of the past projects that maybe didn't have utilities in the past starting to try to integrate those now that we've seen things like Shopify uh, integrate token gating and, and a number of others? Well, I think what would be good is um, typically some of the projects that we've been investing in. And I might hand this one to Bart. Um, if Bart, if, uh, in regards to, I guess, some of the utility coming out of some of the projects we're investing in, and uh, it might be worthwhile maybe after we talk about this, probably just to give a little bit more about the, um, I, I guess, our investment thesis and strategy and just sort of how we're approaching this space. But, um, Bart, do you want to take this one? Yeah. Look, I think the NFT utility discussion is emerging in the sense that where we say there's utility Let's, let's look at Board Ape Yacht Club, you know, the utility of going to a social event. They tried to do a dating app a while ago, but lo and behold, that didn't work because of the demographics of ownership. You know, like the utility thing is still something, if we had a look at those that are part of the, uh, the mainstream media discussion, is something that's evolving. But in terms of what is the potential, and this, I suppose, takes us back to that previous point that you made about ICO craze 2016, 2017, we got all of these things that, were potential businesses if they were implemented correctly, but they were not. Now we're seeing a, a method of development where we can have adoption. So if we look at the NFTs and the utility that's potentially there, over the, the next couple of years where we're back into that build cycle, I would say that we're going to see a lot more utility that translate to partnerships with major enterprise. If we're looking at the NFT of a travel token that partners with a major airline or a you know, a, a engagement strategy with a major football club, be that NFL, soccer, Australian rules, whatever we might call football, you know, you're going to start to see a lot of those fan engagement strategies go through rather than them just being take from fans and give yep. to football clubs, uh, which is what we saw this cycle. Like we are going to start to see a partnership where if you are, have your membership, you buy your NFT for one Heineken beer, you can get airdropped five more of them and then you get a free one at the end. And that then shows that you've been at the a number of games, which can then translate to a Roblox or, well, not Roblox, it's a closed ecosystem, but a sandbox scarf for your child who doesn't anymore want to watch a 90-minute football match on the TV. They'd prefer to watch it in a recreation on sandbox using tracking data in the virtual stadium and they want to have their arsenal scarf that they can wear to that. Like these are the sorts of things that are, you know, we're having discussions on that are coming into enterprise with those sort of utility plays. And I suppose on my end that that's what I would say is most exciting now that we're seeing that physical digital world come together and the planning for the next three to five years because adoption is not there yet if we really look at it. Adoption is coming. So how much utility can you have when, You've got 3,000 unique owners of a 10,000 item collection. Like you need 10,000 hourly users, not 
owners. Yeah, there, there's a um, like, yeah, you, and you guys have talked. You know, we've talked a lot about this. Kind of what? Are, where are we in the cycle? How many? What is adoption? And so I, there's there's two stats I always look at. Number one is on chain right now, self custodied. There's only 1.5 million Ethereum wallets that have one or more ETH in it. Um, if you drop that down to 0.1 ETH, it's only seven million. I mean. I, I'm, I'm responsible for at least, you know, a, a hundred of those. Um, and so, you know, the idea that, that w- there's anyone is able to kind of bring mainstream in. Yeah. Like I think Top Shots, it was great. Like the fact that people even think that there's a value in an NFT or excited about an NFT, the fact it's a household name to me, that's a win. Let's take it, uh, where we can get it. The yeah. challenge, the challenge is, is that we saw this kind of, you know, the, the, the YouTubers and, and all the Instagrammers just pumping these garbage projects, which never had any legs to begin with. And, you know, as a full disclosure, anytime that, you know, myself, I'm looking at a project or, or for investment myself or Y Whales, like I call these two guys um, because you guys have been in it so long and you understand the, the difference between um, hopium and, and actual like, you know, solid teams and backgrounds and, and doing a lot of really amazing due diligence. Um, you know, Trent, it, I, I will say, you know, when, when we were looking at a project to invest in and we, we, we brought you guys in, um, the comments and feedback we got from you were so different than our own theses, you know, and a lot of this is just your time in the space. You know, what are, what are kind of like those, those top three things that you just immediately, the first time someone's pitching you that just in your head, you've got to check these three boxes. Otherwise you're just going to pass. I think it's one of those things after and and um, should be noted as well. Uh, the business that I exited in 2016 was an IT recruitment business. So um, it had very much been a background built on sort of human personnel, profiling people, getting an understanding and, uh, you know, their background track record, getting to the crux of exactly what it is that they, you know, the individuals did. But on the flip side is understanding a business, getting to the crux of what is, uh, what comprises this business in terms of, um, type of attributes that top candidates would want to go and join. And so um, I think what really comes down um, to, and, you know, I think um, Bart would share the same view because, you know, has a similar background as well with, um, you know, uh, technology consulting, is that it always comes down, you know, what I would say number one is the, the people involved, um, the founders, um, and it comes, that's one of those things where after you've built up a, career of um, sort of unconscious competence um, within profiling, you know, what is this person telling me? Let's get to the crux of exactly what, what it is they're saying. Do they have the, the attitude, the aptitude, the skill set to, um, to break out and, and launch a successful project? Because they're not necessarily going to have the track record because the uh, crypto and Web3 primarily are the domain of the younger generations, you know, Gen Y and Gen Z. So you can't go through the standard um, sort of qualifying or quantifying metrics of um, what, what you would typically do in, let's say, traditional equity yeah. investments. Um, and I think what it really comes down to as well is understanding that generation because, you know, you're talking to 21-year-old founders, 22-year-old founders, that are raising millions, which, you know, wouldn't necessarily have happened in traditional finance unless there was some, well, not to the scale that it does in crypto. So number one would be, um, I guess, the human element. And, uh, I mean, there's a whole sort of cascade of um, 
or a whole cage of um, sort of subpoints to that, but I'd say humans. Uh, secondly, what is the problem that they're trying to solve? Um, you know, because you, particularly in the space, you do speak to a lot of projects that are launching tokens for token sake, just like uh, in 2017 and 18 was launched in a white paper and decentralizing it when it didn't really need to be yep. decentralized. Um, and then thirdly, I would say that it would have to be community and sentiment, which is probably a, a much bigger driver in this space. Um, and this comes back to that first part where I talked about, you know, the, the generations is actually understanding the that Web3 may not be for baby boomers. It may not even, you know, necessarily be for my generation, which is uh, Generation X. Uh, millennials were the first digitally native generation. Um, Gen Zs have grown up and with it, and, you know, they're basically cyborgs because technology has become augmented to their... They, they, yeah. I, I've got, I've got um, two Gen Zers and they, have no, they cannot differentiate between real life friends and online friends. It's the same, like it's, it's just a different, yeah. different communication channel, but it's the same thing. Yeah, so I think and I really understanding that sentiment, you know, understanding that um, memes, like how important memes are in the space. Because um, if you look at meme, as, you know, it's really essentially a unit of culture um, and sort of it jumps from mind to mind um, of different individuals. And if you look at um, particularly NFTs and how they, like they propagated and how this whole space um, sort of has grown sort of exponentially. Um, it's really this idea or pattern of behavior that sort of reproduces um, itself, just jumping from individual to group to individual to multiple groups. And for the most part, we don't even know the origin of them, um, but we've seen many of them, you know, Pepe the Frog, Dogecoin. Um, and, but even just like the war cries of, of the crypto community, you know, diamond hands, like, um, and particularly when you're looking at the, uh, the, the, um, the GameStop short squeeze and how that turned into, you know, stonks and it brought about this, like the, the shift in like the community where you could crowdsource, um, sort of like this fevered, um, so, uh, sort of focus and target and it's like yeah so I, I think really like like understanding sort of I guess those three things and sort of how memes play into society and culture I think you know it, it, it's I I know how old I am when I when I appreciate memes but I have no desire or thought to go you know what I'm gonna do today is go make you know a hundred memes and, and post these out on myself it's just it is but it is part of their language it is part of their culture I appreciate it you know we we you know in our discord channels we use them all the time um, but I, I just have this thing it's from decades of business that you have your serious face on and and then you can go play on the other things and I really struggle with with kind of aligning these two I think community is um, and that's what's really driving you can probably say Web3 is a decentralized internet um, is that the, the one of the components of it is, you know, these communities that are building out where value is accruing to the community rather than a centralized entity. And so I think um, just by virtue of 
uh, how uh, the culture of this space, um, launching projects into it, um, is one, one thing I've noticed when we're assessing deals is that a lot of, well, I can't say a lot, generalization, but there are a number of projects that are only really f- sort of focused on uh, one side of the equation, which is let's build a marketplace because we have X that we can show on the marketplace. Um, where they haven't looked at the buy side, like where is the community, the engaged community that's going to come through and actually purchase, you know, X, Y asset or X, Y NFT. It was similar to 2018, 2019 when um, tokenization or fractionalization of assets. So uh, real estate fractionalization, there were plenty of, projects that were launching that were fractionalizing multi-hundred million dollar commercial real estate, but there just weren't any buyers. Um, And so they hadn't built out the community then. And so I think what, as we evolved um, into, uh, you know, throughout 2021 with the the rise of Web3, community is like, is the foundation. It underpins everything that we do in this space. So if you're not addressing community, uh, with a project that you're launching, um, then you aren't going to necessarily, well, it's unlikely you're going to be able to receive funding because that's one of the key things um, or the key points that VCs are looking at or investors are looking at. Um, but at, at the same time, it's uh, your growth um, and your survival is dependent on, the, on that. No, and, and I'll say you guys, the, the two of you, have done an amazing job of building your own, you know, just kind of VC community around yourselves. Um, one of the things I found since entering the, the Web3 space full time about a year and a half ago, um, you know, compared to fintech, compared to medtech, compared to, you know, retail and everywhere else I've been, generally it's very hostile towards, towards, uh, you know, com- you know, competitors or, or peers, whatever the case is. Um, Web3 and, and you guys entirely embody this are so open, so welcoming. And, you know, there's times where we're working on something, we'll casually be talking to you guys and you're like, that's great. But you really should do this, this, and this. And there's no, you know, long-term benefit for you guys to take the time out of your days and do these things. Um, but you've built this amazing network really around the globe of just, you know, Trent and Bart are just great guys. Um, and it's not a formal relationship that you have. There's nothing there. But like anyone, I, I hear all the time people like, yeah, I, I, I messaged Brent and got this like, look at this long email I got back. And so I really applaud you guys for for being kind of that, you know, the the elder statesman, I would say, of, of Web3 and kind of embodying that that relationship. I think that's one of the core elements of of Web3 is that we've seen a lot of failures with the traditional business and it realistically comes back to the point you made about community. You need a diverse range of VCs to be sitting on a cap table or investors to be sitting on a cap table to make a product successful, um, you know, especially with our approach being that we are an index-style fund with a very large number of investments. It, it, it serves our benefit to assist others and to work with other VCs, to work with other people such as yourself and networks to make sure that you know, we can provide you with products that meet your client base or your partnership base, but also therefore, you know, it, it allows for that that leveraging of multiple portfolio managers, multiple analysts, that we can all share those things. And, and there is, especially when we're looking at this stage, at early stage token-based funds, but then later stage when we're looking at, you know, the equity venture, which is where we're all heading was the check sizes get bigger. We need multiple players there. So while I would say that Trent and I probably just enjoy talking to people and making sure that we understand what's going on, 
I do think it's a bit of a theme of the industry that we are pretty happy and we've grown tired of uh, the traditional ecosystems where it's, you know, traditional VC or PE saying as you eat what you kill. Well, that that ethos, I think, is a dead in this ecosystem, which is where you now have DAOs. You know, a DAO, the whole point of it is you're not constrained to one organisation. You can work anywhere in the world. You can work whatever hours you want. It's voted on by the organisation. It's a community-based venture. Um, and that, yeah, I hope prevails through in the in the investment mandates of uh, firms coming into the space as well. Otherwise, uh, we'll end up in the same mess as a lot of the growth stage VCs that uh, have been deploying for the past three to five years right now where it's just competing against each other, driving up people's valuations and I've got no idea how they're going to get any liquidity on their investments, not to knock the industry, but it, it's, you know, that competition yeah. doesn't help anyone working together. You know, and, and, and again, we, we entirely agree with why we love hanging out with you guys, you know, and, and let's kind of just circle around. So everyone understands like the types of, of, you know, wins that we're looking for. And, and Trent, you and I have had some good conversations about this too. You know, a, a 10, 10 to 20%, you know, kind of increases is, is we're not here for that. Um, you know, when you guys are looking for moonshots and really, I mean, when you're talking early stage, um, you know, you, you guys have, uh, your, your performance, uh, metrics on your fees range from, um, you know, kind of a 200% increase to a 1500% increase. Um, t- talk through this, the mentality of when, when you're, you know, trying to apply the, the theory and logic that you even have to have a, a cap table level, or not a cap table, a fee level for a 1500 plus percent return. Yeah. So it's, been interesting speaking with investors that have come from the traditional space when they look at the fee schedule um, and yet it's sort of not uncommon when you're looking at the crypto space and so um, essentially just for listeners we have a 50 million dollar fund and um, our fees are 2 and 20 up to uh, 3x return um, and, and then it's 30% from a 3x to a 15x and then it's 40% from a 15x and up and so the, how we calculated that is that it's not, and I'm just conscious because I'm, it's a lot easier when you're talking one-on-one with someone because you can gauge w- what sort of returns you can talk about because a lot of listeners, when you talk about you're shooting for 50x or 100x, will go, that, that's ridiculous. That's some, like, wild hopium. Um, and yet... We have examples of those, um, but they are not, you know, it's not like there is a plethora of them happening in the space. So they're, you know, the unicorns that you're really shooting for. The average return, um, and I'm just conscious of what I can and can't say, but we know what the track or the data states from a track record. And so that's how we've sort of structured that fee Yeah, and again, it's it's more a matter of the fact that, that it exists. Um, there's many more unicorns right now in Web3 than any other asset class I'm aware of. Um, and you know, you can, you can go out and if you had this fee structure in a, in a fintech or a medtech or a, you know, ed, you know, ed, edutech, um, you know, people will just go like, well, you're might as well put dust on that. It's never going to happen. Like I haven't seen that in, you know, 10, 20 years, but it happens consistently in Web3. Um, However, it, it is, you know, that, that boom, you know, they, they go up, but they also can, can go bust, um, relatively easily. So, I mean, that, yeah. that's where it really comes down to having the, the time in the space, which is so important. Actually, this actually comes back to a previous point that you made as well with the utility base of your NFT. 
Um, so I'm going to deviate back to that for a second. So one of the big things is if you own your NFT, you know, that utility play that you can then have is if you have a MasterCard branded with the NFT of the ecosystem, so say, for example, it's uh, Fluffworld, which is uh, one of the ones that they are partnered with, what that allows is that you can then, once they have a token ecosystem, potentially earn rewards within that ecosystem based upon your spending on that MasterCard. So like you traditionally get a rewards, you know, your points for your airlines, Instead, those points are going back to that metaverse-based ecosystem. So if we're looking at utility of your NFTs and how that can plug into your traditional day-to-day life, that's a, you know, a pretty easy example of things that are being developed. They've uh, developed a tier one relationship with uh, MasterCard throughout the Asia-Pacific region, which does give global access. Um, now, with that, you know, that's, that's straight out of a 12-week accelerator into a tier one license with a global card distributor, of which I believe the only other tier one licenses in the region, I will have to check this, um, exists with the core banking um, institutions within Australia and New Zealand. Those sort of diamond, you know, to develop that without the backing of an accelerator and the branding of something like that behind, it's, it's a much harder slog to get to that point. Um, so as a key example, that's that's definitely one that stands out over the past the past three months. You know, so you guys probably deal with this way more often than I do, although I, it happens every day where, where people come on and they go, I, I, I've invested, you know, money in these NFTs and, you know, I, I, now I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> Generally, I say, you know, you have those conversations. You go, where did you hear about them? Why did you buy this? What, what do you have? And you, you, you go and look at their OpenSea wallet and, you know, they've, they've, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars gone into projects that will never go anywhere. How do you guys help? How do we, I, I would say overall as the crypto community, how do we help to educate the overall masses that want to, they want to be involved. They want to like this asset class, but we're stuck with, uh, you know, YouTubers and TikTokers that are, that are pumping, you know, kind of dead projects already with, with, you know, just a, a pump and dump schemes. Like what, what's kind of the solution here to provide some actual voices and reasoning and education? I think, um, and my thesis on this isn't, you know, exactly uh, complete, but it's, and this is coming back to that um, cultural differentiators in terms of how people consume information. And it's, I think if we're trying to overlay what we've previously done in terms of, um, you know, how do we get the, um, the expert or the same voices in the space because you have a bunch of, you know, TikTok influencers and YouTube influencers. Now, I think in terms of how Gen, the, you know, Gen Y, Millennials, Gen Z consume information, I think that is the platform. And as opposed to, you know, the, the Web2 narrative, which is where, you know, value accrues in the hands of a few, it also trust accrues in the hands of a few in web two but in web three if we're looking at a value accrues to the community essentially what we're going to have is just many voices all speaking up and so i think what it does is it puts more um the onus on the actual um the public the audience to discern the um who they would like to follow who they would like to trust um and i i guess who ultimately will be educating them because i think and this has been something I've been thinking about because it's easy to say, like, how do we get, for instance, like mass adoption? You can talk about accessibility, education, 
uh, trusted access points, um, usability um, experience uh, or user experience, um, you know, build for digitally native generations is probably what I would be saying um, or would be one of my, you know, key points because building for that really requires a different mindset. So I think it's going to be pretty wild out there in terms of how we consume information because you got these influencers on YouTube, you know, that are 22, year, 22 years old that are, you know, dishing out financial advice, you know, like they're dishing out burgers at In-N-Out, that, and, which is an American. And, and, they're, and they're much better at the burgers <laughs> than they are the advice. Yeah. Does that come back to education a little bit in terms of what, what at the moment our education system is teaching us is not that financial literacy. Let, let's really go to the core of what the issue is. And that, if we're going to the beauty of what we can hopefully develop with Web3 is we look at, you know, at EdTech, like what are those EdTech platforms that are coming out? How do we encourage the youth, like youth unemployment, you know, 16 to 24 year olds, it's terrible within, you know, you look at Western economies, exact figures in each jurisdiction, it's, it's rising. So if we look and there are platforms coming out in Web3, one of which is an outlier project, it's called Hundo. You know, that's EdTech for Gen Z, focusing on that digital transformation, jobs for people within this emerging digital ecosystem. Like how do we capture jobs for them? But that then brings awareness to things like what is a token economy? What is an NFT? What is speculation? Because if you are working for a DAO and you're being paid in a DAO token or maybe you're being paid in a, in a stablecoin, that awareness is there. What is the custody over your wallet so that even on the other side, we can then look at protecting those assets once someone holds them? How do they, you know, the simple thing, like even if we look back at 2016 to 2018, like these guys raising $100 million and holding it all in ETH rather than moving it $2 and all of a sudden that $100 million is now worth $10 million how do they build their product? Like these sorts of standard hedging things, which it's just not common. And that still shocks us every week, like how people are storing their assets. Um, zero cap, obviously, the custody and those custody solutions, which are coming about and becoming more retail accessible, um, you know, people just aren't aware of. So if, yeah, if we're going to look at it, I, th- I think there is a solution and ed tech within a Web3 environment is potentially something that, that yeah, and you bring up uh, you know a really good point. And I, I kind of when I talk quite often, I, I say there's there's a lot of problems with Web three. Uh, to me, there's there's two really big ones that need to be solved right off the bat. Um, one is bridges. Uh, you know, there's there's got to be some some standards there and a lot of security built around them because losing money just passing through or you know that you think something's there on the other side holding that wrapped Bitcoin, you know that that's a big loss. But we, I don't want to talk about that for a second. <clears throat> to me, the others is is wallets. And I, at this point now, I have reviewed and talked to a hundred plus people that are currently in production making wallets that are the exact same as the wallets we have today. You know, I don't need a better MetaMask. I, I, I need something to manage, you know, the thoughts of a digital lifestyle. And a digital lifestyle, as you guys know, will involve hundreds, thousands, potentially tens of thousands of NFTs over your lifetime. And, I, you know, what, mm. what do we got? We have a single source. <laughs> thing it's like having email with nothing but an inbox that's it and there's no spam filters there's nothing you can mm-hmm. stop um i know you guys see a lot are, are we seeing anyone that's that's starting to figure out that there's a lot more to to crypto and, and web3 than you know just holding you know uh, coins and, and and tokens 
Definitely on that side. There's custody solutions coming through, like at the moment. That that is a massive thematic that we're seeing over the past three to four months. Is the tooling that covers that, even going so far as wallets, you know, starting to address that post quantum environment. Where how do we do a quantum proof wallet? Like, what is the protection and the thoughts that need to happen there? And that's that's the key thing. Of I always say, it, the adults coming to the room is that you've got these teams coming into the space now that have been building solutions, you know, university research labs for the past 20 years. And these solutions are going to translate and actually have a real use case now in this Web3 world. So providing wallet solutions that are potentially quantum proof, you know, that's you know one solution. But then if we're looking at different custody pieces, there's you know, custody wallets that have a chain of legal authorizers on them that therefore allow for recovery through a designated global network of, you know, of uh, Trent, you can remember the word, of legal officers who are legally accountable um, and therefore, um, you know, if they do not act in the essence of the of the protocol, they, um, they are subject to criminal charges on that front and that can then provide you a recovery method so that you're not lo- left with just that. a seed phrase. Uh, there is a process through the KYC within that, uh, ecosystem and that product's actually going for a parachain auction on Polkadot at the moment. Um, so there are solutions coming across custody, across recovery of wallets that do make the adoption possible because that that's the core problem that we're kind of coming to here is how do we have adoption when there's so many holes within the onboarding of the wallets, with the recovery of the wallets, lost assets. That's a massive issue that we're fa- going to face and the solution, solutions are being uh, you know, brought forward what is going to be the uh, the dominant solution. Well, I suppose that's what the next three to four years of, of build time is going to give us and hopefully we uh, we come across enough of the projects and invest across a broad range to make sure that we're I there think on you that journey. That. I mean, that's exactly what's what's needed and, and I hope that you're tracking some good projects on there. Um, with, with, so I want to pivot over real quick. Uh, to the open verse. Uh, we'll, we'll use Jamie Burke's thing because I just, I can't stand the word meta anymore since it was stolen from us. So, but, but in the open metaverse or whatever it's going to end up being called, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw a thesis out for you guys that I'm, I'm starting to see this common theme. You know, you, you can view, uh, contents of, of the web on a desktop. And it shows it a certain way. Uh, if you have it on your mobile, it shows it, you know, kind of a mobile version. Um, and I think that what I'm starting to see from my perspective, my view is that, that meta or the, the virtual reality is just the fact that you're visiting a product, a web page through a VR AR experience. It, it doesn't have to be this siloed thing that only lives inside, you know, like horizon where everything has to come in to one world. Every company potentially the same as they have a website now, we'll have some sort of metaverse exposure if they so choose. Um, but it's going to take some time. Am I totally off base with this one? Not at all. No, not at all. Um, and just a side comment on um, uh, meta hijacking or um, uh, taking over the, um, what is it, the prefix of metaverse and like my, like it's like JP Morgan rebranding his yeah. cash, um, and um, so I think particularly with where we're going uh, with, and it, we should really call it probably the proposed metaverse, right? Because I think that there is probably a technicality or a proposed open metaverse that there isn't. You know, we're in a quasi metaverse at the moment, 
um, being that we're interacting right now throughout this particular platform um, in a digital manner. And um, but the metaverse is a all encompassing, you know, where you can go from world to world or from experience to experience and really at the center of that is interoperability across multiple different platforms but also uh, property rights so that I can take this water bottle you know from um, one world or one experience into another I can take my Facebook memories somewhere else I can take my uh, World of Warcraft sword um, and take that into another game um, and w one of the projects we invested in, uh, Medici, um, allows for the rendering of a, a particular item or object within a particular space where it might be, um, for instance, a pen in one world, but then you take it into a game and it's a sword and it renders. Or you might have a particular car where if you take from Decentraland into Somnium space into Facebook, it all sort of renders uh, according to the environment that it's in. Um, so I think that, you know, the internet really wasn't designed to provide the immersive experiences required for the internet. It was designed for to basically send files um, and have sort of one server talk to another. So I guess this immersive metaverse, really that, if we do achieve that, this proposed open metaverse, and it's really going to be the evolution of the internet, our experience of it, how we interact on a day-to-day -day basis. I've actually got an Oculus here, um, but it's a uh, don't. Uh, it's one of those things that's it's great because it's a it's like a great game. You know, I can play Rocky and I can fight Rocky Balboa or Apollo Creed. Um, and uh, I'm interested to see how this evolves into being uh, a method to be able to go and work with your co-workers in a digital world and I mean, i've got some thinking that um and maybe we'll, we'll get onto this in a bit but just around the future of it all and where this is all going but um yeah. no I, I would say that the more time you spend kind of in web3 and understanding this interoperability the ability for me to say this is my wallet this is my assets and being able to log in and use these and and so i, I uh, i've got a, a teenage son he's just turned 15. I got another 10 year old boy. And so suddenly they're all, they're like, they're good for Call of Duty. Like they want to play the good games. And thank God, because I was done. I, Fortnite, yeah. I can never get into, but you want to do custom Call of Duty? Like, let's go. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I'm from back in the day. And the thing that was so shocking is here they are downloading two, three, four, five different versions of Call of Duty. And it was just amazing that even the achievements that they had, like nothing transferred from one to the next. And I, as I'm playing this, I go, hmm. my God. It's, this is so simple. This is their own ecosystem. And it's not even recognizing as we bounce back and forth between these games that we're playing in these things. And, and so the idea, and you know, my, my one son, the 10 year old, he, he wanted this one skin. I said, well, can you go buy it from someone else? He goes, no, you can only buy it from their store. That's the biggest change we're going to see. We're going to, you know, you're going to see, you know, right now the games, <laughs> I think that we're familiar with most of them, not talking fluff world, but, um, you know, some of the really, you know, kind of prehistoric, uh, you know, metaverse, uh, not metaverse, blockchain games, um, you know, we're going to look back and say that was, a, that was a great start. But the idea that we have to see blockchain move into AAA games is, is definitely coming. And I know a lot of people are working on it, um, mm. but, but it's going to be interesting to see who gets there first. And I think, I think you guys have invested in a few projects that, that have the potential to get there. 
Yeah, there's one specifically we just recently closed, which is uh, Uncaged Studios out of Israel. Um, so they did Monkey Ball, which was uh, fastest selling NFT. I know you say the names. It's always laugh inducing. But that was the fastest selling NFT uh, package that went out on um, on Solana. But the guys that are behind that, again, it's the adults come into the room. They were the founders of Playticker, which is a NASDAQ listed gaming studio. Um, that game is developing quite rapidly and you know, is due out this year. So if you look at where that's coming and the level of community engagement, um, you know, we're not looking too far into the future. There's obviously been a lot of setbacks, not obviously, but there have been setbacks this year for a number of the AAA-rated games. Um, you know, hacks, if we look, or not hacks, but uh, exposures, I suppose, of their ecosystems. If we look at Alluvium, um, they had an instance months ago which has set them back about three months based on current reports so but the AAA games it's not too far into the future based upon those current discussions and um uncaged is definitely one that's leading the pack there it's um you know brought some really thought leading individuals from the gaming ecosystem into blockchain they've also previously founded a layer one which was koti so they understand what is required to have a successful both blockchain and a gaming studio, which if we're looking at you know, de-risking of an investment, that's uh, it's a pretty good combination, uh, some pretty sizable leads in that round as well. So it was uh, one of the ones that we were quite happy to be involved in. And also probably to speak to, you know, uh, gaming guilds, you know, the rise of gaming guilds. No, go, hit 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 that one because it, yeah. to me now you're combining blockchain gaming with with DAOs and community. Uh, these are going to be some of the most powerful forces on the planet once once they get their once they get their act together. And I give I give Gabby at YGG a ton of credit for for really founding this entire asset class. Um, but but now we're seeing you know a, a lot happening with with uh, you know Alluvium and, and others in, in the space that are going to be. Just mm. again, beasts that are that are very professionally well organized. Mm. You want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think you had uh, Darren Smorgan on um, with his gaming guild, Polemus. We were one of the investors in that. Um, but I think what gaming guilds really do is they address a couple of um, sort of key points uh, required for the space. You know, the first one is so you have an NFT or you have a gaming asset. What do you do with it? Um, if you are, you know, not necessarily holding it to go and play it 24-7, um, but you're holding it from an asset appreciation perspective. Um, so there are, you could say, gaming guilds or what's also coming about, and there's a little bit of a blurred line is these NFT marketplaces as well, um, where you can actually put your um, your NFT assets or your gaming assets on. They can be lent out, but the guild can also play them. The guild can provide their own principal assets to be, um, you know, to build out, you know, sort of um, like a uh, like a championship team that goes up against other guilds, and so I think it addresses um, you know what do you do with uh, NFT assets. So you can join guilds, you can become part of a bigger community, which we keep coming back to that point yep. around community. Um, and that second point, which is um, uplifting the community, because you have players that are gaming enthusiasts that don't have the assets. And the gaming guilds are able to provide those and they're able to provide a, um, uh, a, a, a basically a remuneration structure that helps to uplift. And as we saw with Axie Infinity in the Philippines, 
um, where you could earn more playing Axie than you would, you know, uh, the average wage. And so I think gaming um, guilds are going to continue to get bigger. Um, I think from a risk, a counterparty risk perspective, that's all being addressed now. And this comes back to the point that we're talking around custody and um, wallet technology and infrastructure, because if you have all your assets in one particular wallet, then that becomes a honeypot. And as we've seen some of the hacks in the space, um, and there's a lot of uh, projects that are aiming to address that through smart contracts and being able to hold assets, you know, in a segregated manner. Um, I mean, at Zericab, we we provide custody of different assets where you can change the permissions, where you can have people play the NFTs or play the gaming assets, but they're not able to transfer the assets out of custody and it remains um, within, uh, I guess, whilst it's, under Zericap's control, um, like it's insured as well. So it provides, particularly for sort of high value assets. So, um, yeah, I'd say gaming guilds are going to be something to watch because um, following on from what Bart was just talking about with studios and these AAA games and gaming studios that are going to be releasing, I think we're, we have an it's like the tip of the iceberg of what we've seen. Yeah, today. you know, and, and listen, we, we could continue going on with this for hours. Um, but, you know, my day's ending and your day is beginning. So we're going to kind of, you know, I, I'd just like to give you guys a, a quick second to kind of wrap up. Uh, any thoughts, any kind of, you know, you, you guys see so many projects. Alpha Drop is easy for you guys. Um, but, you know, again, speaking to the business leaders around the globe that are interested in this space, you know, what are just a, a couple points that, that you, they should be looking at or thinking about when they're either... Uh, dreaming about building or investing um, in, in this asset class? I'll start with you, Brian. I suppose the key thing that excites me the most and where I'd say you see the most growth in it in the industry is that emerging markets. Like for Web3, we, we look, I think, exact number. It's about 880% growth <clears throat> last year of uh, crypto um, or 880% increase in adoption. But most of that comes from the emerging markets. And if we look at where the major opportunity is, it's capturing that youth, as Trent mentioned, those people that grow up with the device in their hand that are technology native. And those markets of Africa, Latin America, you know, India, Pakistan, the number of individuals there that are under the age of 30 rather than the ageing populations of the West where it's getting from 34 to 36 to 38 as the average age, like... That's the opportunity within this industry for us that we see and and what we really are trying to capture with our investment thesis and the opportunities that we we are really going after because the numbers are just it, if you if you have a resource to help me understand the the gen Zs please please send it over because I struggle every day with the two that <laughs> live in my house. <laughs> The numbers are kind of my my limitation there. Uh, I'll stop at understanding what uh, what drives them on a day to day basis. Uh, uh, the meme society, uh, I think you're probably more active than I am on that. So uh, definitely going to step back from love that it, conversation. Trent, any uh, any parting parting words or thoughts for for uh, emerging entrepreneurs in the space? Well, I think it's um, it's really having a good grasp of Web3 because I think there are a lot of different, you know, sort of definitions of it. And um, so how do you grasp something where, you know, different communities refer to it in different ways? But I think if we look at some of the key aspects of Web3 is, you know, ownership, 
it's web free is open and community focused it's essentially the reallocation of value from centralized from the centralized hands of, of a few to the uh, content creators users of the many um, nfts allow for complete ownership of digital assets and tradability to open marketplaces and so i think you know ownership would be one identity um, where you can have single logins to all platforms no more need for multiple logins to your Facebook, YouTube, Google, uh, basically control how you're represented uh, in the decentralized internet and the open metaverse. I think native payments, which is something that's going to um, be uh, a big, uh, will pr- provide a big change in the user experience because Web 2 wasn't built, for, you know, the infrastructure wasn't built for, what well, Web 2 was built for traditional finance and payment systems. Um, whereas from Web3 in this trustless world that we're in, permissionless payments, you know, through the use of tokens and cryptocurrencies, and there are going to be a multitude of them. And so I think, um, you know, having a, you know, so there's some of the key aspects that I would say, but having a Web3 strategy, particularly for uh, businesses, enterprises, and, you know, a number of investors that have come into our fund have come in, you know, for one of several reasons. One is to learn about Web3 because of the projects that we're investing in, so for their personal education. Two is to um, build out a Web3 strategy for their businesses or their enterprises. Um, and third one is basically to get co-investment rights uh, to uh, the projects that we're investing in. Once again, coming back to the community, I think something that you both touched on is that there is just a really collaborative element to this whole community. And so for entrepreneurs or businesses or anyone looking to build in the space, I think there's no shortage of good voices out there, but I think it's trying to discern who those good voices are because there's just a place for them. Absolutely love it. For for anyone that's interested and, and wants to uh, invest with uh, Max Stealth or, or just kind of uh, chat with you guys further, what's the best way to find you? Uh, contact information. Uh, we can sure. probably leave at the end of this and put some links, but just email is best. Uh, it's bart at maxstealth.com and trend at maxstealth.com. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you for swinging around. Don't go anywhere yet. Uh, but for all you Y whales, thank you guys as always. Uh, this is Trent and Bart with uh, Max Stealth. And and really for anyone that's even thinking about investing or, or building in the space and you just listen to this entire podcast, go back and listen to it again because the answers they're giving really are, are very thoughtful. Um, and there's a lot more in here than just kind of uh, touch and go. So uh, thank you guys again and uh, really looking forward to, to chatting here again in the future. So peace out, Wild Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbach, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWhales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.